Well, we're going to look at uh, the Bible tonight. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you need to have a Bible actually, So, because I'm not going to put the verses up on the screen. So if you haven't got a Bible, uh, get yourself on, pass them around. We're going to read from the book of Genesis, chapter 37, and later chapters. And tonight, basically, we're looking at the story of Joseph and his brothers. One of the great stories in the Bible. On one level, it's a story about strife and reconciliation between brothers. And it's interesting how many of the stories in the book of Genesis are actually about strife between brothers. But it's also a a story which tells you something about the Messiah and the relationship between Jesus, the Messiah, and his Jewish brothers. Um, If you look at the Bible, you find that there are two levels of prophecy, if you like, in the Old Testament. You've got direct prophecy, like Isaiah 53, which speaks about the life and death of Jesus, the Messiah, his resurrection. And you've got passages which we call typological. means that in the story, there is something which relates to the nature of the Messiah. And you look at the story, and you can see there's something relevant in this story connecting to Yeshua, the Messiah, either his first coming or his second coming. Probably one of the most obvious ones is actually the binding of Isaac. Uh, Abraham offers his son Isaac as a sacrifice in the same way as God offers Jesus, the Son of God, as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. And the story of Joseph itself is very much a type of the Messiah. In fact, if you look at uh, rabbinic Judaism, you'll find that they have one explanation for the fact that in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, you have two types of prophecies of Messiah, one of a suffering servant Messiah. Uh, Isaiah 53 is the main passage like that, who will, Messiah who will suffer, uh, who will bear the sins of others, and who will be the mediator, if you like, between God and sinful humanity. And you have prophecies like Isaiah chapter 2, which speak of the Messiah ruling and reigning in the time which we call the Messianic Age or the Millennium, bringing peace and justice to the world. So you have two different pictures of the Messiah. And one of the explanations for the rabbis of this is that there are two messiahs, one they call Mashiach ben Yosef and one they call Mashiach ben David. Mashiach ben Yosef means Messiah, son of Joseph, Messiah who will be like Joseph uh, in character, who will experience the things which Joseph suffered and will be suffer and be raised up after his suffering. And Mashiach ben David is like Messiah who will rule and reign as the king as David reigned. It's an interesting theory, but we believe actually that the Messiah in both cases is Yeshua, his first coming, coming to suffer and to die, his second coming, coming to rule and reign as the Messiah. Now, I want to look particularly at uh, the subject, really, of the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. So we're going to read pretty quickly through the story of Genesis, not read all of it, but I'm going to start from Genesis chapter 37 and verse 1. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding his flock, the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhar, the sons of Zilphar, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than his, all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear the dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed rule reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for, all his, for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father, to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Okay, so let's just set the scene a bit and look about the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. Can you put the next one up, Janie? Um, Obviously, there's a problem with the brothers. In fact, if you look at this 
slide which shows you the relationship between Joseph, um, Jacob, and his brothers. Jacob and his four different women through whom he had children. His favorite wife, Rachel, through whom he had Joseph and Benjamin. And his first wife, who was his less favorite wife, Leah, through whom he had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and later Issachar and Zebulun. And the two maids, Leah's uh, maid, Zilpah, through whom he had Gad and Esher, and Rachel's maid, Bilhah, through whom he had Dan and Naphtali. So, is there a problem there? Uh, if you look at God's order in the beginning, it was for one man, one wife, to have one, their children. Mono, monogamy, we call it. So here you've got one man, four different women through whom he's had children. Uh, one of whom he loves, one of whom he doesn't love, and two of who are sort of extras. <laughs> hey, so what's going to happen is that the one who is of the child of the one who's loved, the wife who's loved, is going to be the favoured son, isn't he? And that's Joseph. You also notice actually there's only one daughter, <laughs> and perhaps uh, 12 boys and only one girl. There's not much civilising influence of the females there. But that's how it is. And it's a kind of quite a dysfunctional family if you look at the story. Uh, what had happened, Jacob has returned with his wives and sons from Laban the Syrian after he'd fled from his brother Esau because he'd basically taken the birthright and the blessing from Esau and Esau wanted to kill him so he went away and actually spent 21 years away due to this quarrel which he'd had with his brother Esau. Uh, blessing had been given to Jacob, not to Esau, which meant that the covenant going through Isaac, going through Abraham and Isaac, would go to Jacob, not to Esau, and to Jacob's sons, the 12 sons of Israel, not to the sons of Esau. And through the covenant was going to come the Torah, and also ultimately the Messiah. So this blessing was very important. And Jacob had returned from Syria, crossing over into the promised land, meeting the Lord in the way. And by the time we get to chapter 37, some quite severe problems had arisen in the family. First of all, Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, had died on the way to Bethlehem. And as a result of this, Joseph is left without a mother. Um, and... Reuben, his eldest son, had been disgraced in an incident where he goes into Bilhar, in other words, has sexual relationships with Bilhar, who's Rachel's maid, and the mother of Dana, Naphtali, and as a result, loses his birthright as the eldest son. Two next sons, Simeon and Levi, have both shown themselves to be cruel and deceitful in an incident following the rape of Dinah by Shechem, in which they avenge themselves on the whole city of Shechem by killing all the males there and taking plunder from the city. And in chapter 38, you have an incident where Judah, the fourth son, decreases himself when he impregnates Tamar, his daughter-in-law, thinking she is a prostitute. Now, I think, what are the stories doing in the Bible? Uh, well, the Bible tells you like it is, and the Bible actually tells you about the sins of people. And it's pretty clear that there's quite a bit of sin in this family. Uh, which brings us to Joseph. Now, Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, and he's the father's favorite. He's the eldest son of his favorite wife, Rachel. And the story goes on to reveal that J Joseph has a lot of advantages in life. He's good-looking, he's intelligent, he's honest and trustworthy, and he's God-fearing. And he's given the position, basically, of the firstborn, even though he's the youngest. And he's given this privilege, he's given this coat of many colors, the famous Technicolor dream coat or whatever it was. Uh, and the favoritism benefits him, but also causes his brothers to be jealous to the point of hating him and even wanting to kill him. And he doesn't do himself much favors by telling bad reports of his brothers to his father. So by the time we get to this part of the story, which is the most sets the scene, we find that Joseph is pretty much a loner. He's got no, his mother's died, brothers dislike him, and he's a bit of an outsider. And because perhaps he's a bit of an outsider, he's the one who actually develops a relationship with God, who has a sense of right and wrong. And in this passage we've just read, God reveals to him his future in a dream, that one day his brothers are going to come and bow down to him, and his mother and father are going to come down and bow down to him. Uh, was it wise of him to share that dream? Well, we could say perhaps not. 
but the dream came from God, and it's going to become the center point of the story. And as a result of this, in fact, his brothers hate him all the more and even want to kill him, which we'll read in the next part of the story. So we go back to Genesis 17, 37, and we read in verse 12, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to them, Here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. We will say some wild beast has devoured him, and we will see what it will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do, no, do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to their father. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many plunders that was on, his, on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal, then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was coming a a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let, our hand, let not our hand be on him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed up by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you not know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his toes and his, put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son for many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So we have this very tragic story. The brothers concoct a story and decide to kill Joseph. Uh, Reuben tries to rescue him, and he puts him in a pit instead of killing him, but he doesn't manage to rescue him because they, they sell him in the meantime to these Ishmaelite traders. In this story, actually, Reuben's the one who comes out best, and it may be that Reuben has learned something from his previous mistake and is perhaps more repentant and wanting to do good rather than evil. Judah comes out perhaps the worst. Was he being merciful or mercenary when he says he's going to send them, sell him to the caravan of Ishmaelites? If you just leave him in the pit, someone might come and rescue him and he will go and escape and tell what's happened. If they kill him themselves, they'll have blood guilt on their hands as Cain did. So they sell him to the Egyptians and he's out of the way and they're not responsible for his death. It's actually sold for 20 shekels of silver, price of dedication for a young man or a boy. We think of Yeshua being sold for 30 pieces of silver. And Joseph is taken down to Egypt. Reuben returns to try to rescue Joseph, but it's too late. And the brothers then add sin to sin by arranging this deception by which the coat is dipped in blood, to give the appearance that Joseph has been torn apart by wild beasts. They don't actually say this has happened, but they leave Jacob to come to that conclusion. Think about what they're doing. They're actually working towards lying and murdering, two characteristics of the evil one, which Jesus spoke about in the New Testament. 
And it says then that Jacob tears his clothes in mourning and refuses to be comforted. His favorite son has now been killed. His favorite wife, Rachel, has died. Jacob is in deep mourning and refuses to be comforted. It says his brothers, uh, all the sons and his daughters tried to comfort him. Just think about that for a moment. Benjamin didn't know what had happened. The daughter didn't know what had happened. They could offer some legitimate comfort. Could the other brothers offer any legitimate comfort? No way. They knew what had happened. They were lying and they were deceiving. And they were responsible for what had happened. So their words of comfort are empty. They're hypocrisy. And think about this also. For the next several years, in fact, 20 years altogether, they would be knowing in their hearts that they had done this to their brother and they had lied to their father about it and therefore they were under this terrible burden of guilt. Imagine how that must have felt. Uh, Cover up. Uh, what if someone, one of them, spilt the beans and actually let out what had really happened? So there'd be bad relationships, not just between them and their father, but also between each other. And you can see just how this was a sin which was weighing upon their consciences and would be a burden which they would have to carry for the next 20 years, as I say, before they met with Joseph. And it would cause a great cloud of guilt and grief to fall on the family. And the principle is, of course, that sin separates us. Separates us from God, separates us from one another. Psalm 32, it says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. All those years when they were not acknowledging their transgression, the sin must have been very heavy upon them. And God has actually had a program to arrange this circumstances in which that barrier could be removed through repentance and reconciliation. It would take a long time, though. And the rest of the story, let's go through it quickly before we get to the important chapters, which are the brothers going down to Egypt. Uh, Chapter 39 to 40, Joseph goes down to Egypt where he is sold as a slave to a man called Potiphar. He acts wisely in his house and he becomes the chief steward. And God is with him because he is honest and he looks after the place well and he's competent and he's promoted to a position even though he's a slave in the house and he attracts him the eye of Potiphar's wife, Potiphar. Potiphar's wife who accuses him of trying to rape her and has him thrown into prison. Again, he's treated with great injustice here and ends up in prison. Chapter 40 is in prison, and he's given, again, a position of responsibility because of his trustworthy nature. And while he's in the prison, he interprets the dreams of the butler and the baker, who had offended Pharaoh and been thrown into prison. Uh, the interpretation which Joseph gives is favorable to the butler, telling him he's going to be restored to his position under Pharaoh, but not favorable to the baker, who he says is going to be hanged. And that's exactly what happens. He tells the butler, as he's restored to Pharaoh, not to forget him, to remember him. But he doesn't. So once again, Joseph is the victim of people's indifference and bad treatment. Chapter 41, two years pass by and Pharaoh has a dream. Let's actually read that dream, because dreams are pretty important in this story. Uh, chapter 41, verse 1 came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows, so Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second dream time, and suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. And behold, seven thin heads blighted by the east wind sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads, so Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in this morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, and there was not one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. And the chief butler then speaks up to Pharaoh and says, I remember that when I was in prison there was a young... Hebrew man there who was able to interpret my dream 
Maybe he can interpret your dream. And they fetch Joseph out of the prison, and Joseph interprets the dream. Uh, he says to Pharaoh in verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. And he goes on to say that uh, Pharaoh, in verse 33, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this, let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years, let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep the food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. So Joseph gives some good news or gives good advice. And he tells them about how Pharaoh can survive this coming famine. Interesting, actually, about the seven years. Just occurs to me. Seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Anyway, uh, Pharaoh says, well, okay, Joseph, you got the job. Do it yourself. Uh, he says, how can we find such a wise man amongst the people of Egypt who can do this? And uh, Joseph suddenly passes from being a Hebrew in prison uh, to being the second ruler in Egypt under Pharaoh. <clears throat> and says Joseph was 30 years old when he starts this ministry. Anybody else who started their ministry at the age of 30? Jesus. Yeah, sure, Jesus, yeah. Another one of the parallels. Okay, so we come to chapter 42. Now, all this time, Jacob and the remaining brothers in Can Canaan were not knowing what had happened to Joseph. There were no texts he could send to say what's happened. Uh, and basically, as far as they were concerned, as far as Jacob was concerned, Joseph was dead. The brothers knew he wasn't dead, but they didn't know what had happened to him. And they hear that there's grain in Egypt, so they're ready to go down to get grain because the famine's already started, and they're beginning to feel the pinch because of no grain, and so they go down to Egypt. And we'll take it up in verse 6 of chapter 42 which is where Joseph's first dream begins to be fulfilled. Now Joseph was governor over the land and it was told, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Can you see what's happening there? It's the first stage of the fulfillment of the original dream. His brothers have come now and are bowing down before him. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. And he said to them, where do you come from? They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. And he said to them, you are spies. You come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We're all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you come to see the nakedness of the land. They said, your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and in fact the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, you are spies. In this manner you should be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you should not leave this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let your, one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you, and, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. This is a very important verse. Note this one. 
Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not say to you, speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned away himself from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And he sends them back, gives them the money back in their sacks, and they return to their father. Then in verse 29, they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Tanan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We're not honest men and not spies. We're twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. The youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. And then he speak about how they told him to bring the youngest son back. And in verse 36, Jacob, their father, said to them, You bereave me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. You want to take Benjamin. All things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him, the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. So we see here that Joseph is, recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Joseph is speaking another language, and they're speaking Hebrew, or whatever, I guess they're speaking Hebrew, and Joseph can understand them, but they don't know that he can understand them. And the dream's now coming to pass. So what's he going to do? Well, he could say, actually, you guys, you say this brother's no more. He's standing in front of you. I'm the brother you put in prison. Uh, you sold down to the Ishmaelites. That would have been a bit of a shock for them. Why doesn't he do that? Because actually he wants to test them to see where they are now. And he wants to bring them to a change of heart. He wants to see where they're thinking. And this is where the spiritual bit comes in, really. Because often God allows tests to come into our lives to see where we're at. And to bring us to the point where we can recognize our faults, our sins in the past, and confess them and put them right. And until they do this, then Joseph is not actually going to make himself known to them. It's interesting that by this time, Joseph, as far as they're concerned, is a foreigner. He's an Egyptian. He doesn't look like them. He's not speaking their language. He's dressed in the clothes of an Egyptian lord. How can he be one of them? But actually, he is one of them. And the whole point of the story is now he's going to find out how are they going to find out that he is actually their brother. And what's the point of this story? And notice what they say. Verse 21. We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Say, so this is 20 years later. That's been on their minds for the last 20 years. And now they're having to confront the fact, and they're recognizing there's a connection between the fact that they're going through trouble at this time, and their indifference, and their contempt for their brother, and the sin which they committed against their brother all those years ago. And Reuben tells them, I told you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now his blood is required upon us. Wow, quite a statement, isn't it? They're recognizing the connection with what they've done in the past and the fact that they're now having to suffer and they're now in trouble. How can they put it right? Well, they go home and tell Jacob what's happened. And Jacob's response is one of, frankly, of pretty much despair. He says, all these things are against me. All these things are against me. If only he knew, actually, that at this point, God was coming very close to him and was offering him something which he could even, not even dream of, seeing again his beloved son, Joseph. But he had to come to the end of ourselves and reach the place where God can deal with us mercifully and restore us to what we've lost through sin. At this point, really, Jacob is quite self-pitying, not looking for faith in God going to change later it's interesting that at this point he's called Jacob later on he's called Israel Jacob the statement of his unbelief if you like Israel as he becomes a believer and a prince with God the name which God gave him and God wants us to walk in faith 
with the name which God, the new name which God has given us through Yeshua. And sometimes, even in adverse circumstances, He wants us to walk in faith and victory. Romans 8 says that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And if you're in Christ, if you're in the Messiah, then even the bad things which happen to your life can work for good. And that's one of the lessons which you come, comes up very much through the story of Joseph and his brothers. What makes a difference is being in the Messiah, having Yeshua in our lives. moment for the brothers, Joseph is outside of their lives. And Joseph, in one sense, represents Yeshua in this story. When they come to recognize Yeshua, when they come to recognize Joseph, that's when it's all going to change. And he makes the difference to the bitter experiences of life. And that phrase, all things are against me. Sometimes many Jewish people experiencing some of the terrible things which have come against them in the Holocaust, even what's happening today in Israel and Gaza, will say, all things are against me. Where's God in all of this? Why doesn't God help me? All things are against me. And at the point, God is actually calling even the Jewish people to a point of repentance and faith and recognition of sin, even in the past, in relation to Yeshua, to bring about reconciliation with God and to bring a new start. And that's really what this whole story is about. When Israel is reconciled to Yeshua, they'll know that all things are working for good for them. And they can see God working for good, in, even in the bad situations. And it's reminded to us as well that God sees beyond the immediate to the eternal and to the spiritual realities which are behind the situation. And sometimes, you know, we can have our disappointments. Have you had any disappointments in your life? Probably. <laughs> uh, sometimes our disappointments may actually be God's appointments. And God may be using the stuff which happens to us. Remember when I was a young man, before I became a Christian, I had a German girlfriend called Steffi. I was really desperate to marry Steffi. <laughs> And then she dumped me, <laughs> and I was absolutely mortified. <laughs> and now I thank God she did, because it would have been a disaster, and I had two good wives <laughs> following that, not at the same time, by the way. Nikki <laughs> uh, uh, and Barbara. But, you know, after I became a Christian. And, you know, if God had allowed me to marry Steffi, my whole life would have been totally different. Might have ended up living in Germany, actually. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have had anything like the ministry which I have today. And so you can see that sometimes out of our disappointments, God is working to bring good out of that. And maybe you've had some disappointments, but God wants to bring good even out of those disappointments. And trials may be a stepping stone to development of our character. And we see that many places the Christians who are persecuted are often the most spiritual ones you can find. And I'm reminded of the scripture in 1 Peter where it says in this, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6, it says, in this you greatly rejoice, so now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, those tested by fire may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, who, be not, who having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with inexpressible and full, uh, and with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So they go back down to Egypt. Let's carry on the story in verse, in chapter 43. Take it up in verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, Unless you, do, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why do you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still, had still had another brother? But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your... Father, still alive, have you another brother? And we told him, according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him, 
if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. And their father Israel said to them, it must, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels, carry a little present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your land, in your hand, the money which was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also, arise and go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may re release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So Jacob changes his mind and he begins to act in accordance with God's will to send Benjamin down and to set in motion the reconciliation which God is looking for. In the meantime, Judah, remember Judah was actually the worst of the brothers. He was the one who actually sold him into slavery. Judah now promises to stand surety for Benjamin. He says if we don't do anything, then not only Benjamin, but all of us will die. And the promise of Abraham will actually come to nothing. So we've got to do it. And Israel recognizes that Judah is telling the truth. And so he sends them down to Egypt. And he stretches the hope that God Almighty will overrule in the heart of the man and will return Benjamin and Simeon to him. In a way, he's now beginning to trust the Lord that he's going to overrule in this situation. And notice it now says he's speaking as Israel, not as Jacob, as the prince with God. So when they get there, Joseph treats them kindly. He ignores the money issue. He restores Simeon to them. He asks about the father. And he sees Benjamin and weeps for him. Verse 29. Uh, verse 27. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And he answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health and is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? He said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother, so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. Imagine what Joseph must have felt seeing his brother and weeping for him. And again, he didn't reveal who he was, but he knew who they were, and he knew who Benjamin was. So they set him a place by himself and they set by them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with, them by, with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews because that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before them but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs so they drank and were merry with him. Interesting little detail here. Um, he puts a meal out before them and he puts them in exactly the right order. That's 11 men and he knows, puts the youngest as the youngest and the oldest as the oldest. And they must have thought, how could he know that? Uh, apparently the odds of doing this by chance are about 40 million to one. So basically the only way he could have done this is because he knew who was the youngest and who was the oldest. And he also gives Benjamin five times as much as the others. Gives them a gift of honor. Now, bearing in mind that these were all hungry men, they could have caused some resentment against Benjamin, but it didn't bother them. And Joseph must have noticed this, and perhaps it pleased him. So at this point, the brothers must have been overjoyed. They feared they're going to be treated as spies, maybe imprisoned or badly treated. In fact, they're honored and feasted at the home of this important Egyptian nobleman. They'd be able to return to their father with Benjamin and, S and Simeon and with a supply of grain. Everything was turning out well. But Joseph had one more test to apply. And I guess God himself was arranging this test. Just test whether they would be fit to be ancestors of the chosen people and of the Messiah. Would they be forced to make a choice between their own welfare and their brother Benjamin and their father? In which case, what would they choose? Well, let's press on the last test. 
And he commanded the stewards, verse, chapter 44, verse 1, saying, fill each man's sacks with food and each, much as they can carry, put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. money. So they did, according to the word that Joseph had spoken. Soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they'd gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, go up, follow the men, and when, they overtake, when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from whom my Lord drinks, one with tree indeed practices divination? You've done evil in so doing. So he overtook them, and he spoke to them the same words. And they said to him, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How could we seal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we shall also be my Lord's slaves. Now he said, now, now also let it be according to your words, he with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. So they go back and they empty their sacks, and they search them, and they find the cup is in Benjamin's sack. So what's going to happen now? They made all these promises to Jacob that they're going to bring Benjamin back. And they won't be able to do it. <clears throat> On one level, they could say, well, tough, it shouldn't have happened like this, but it did. Uh, we'll just have to go back to our father and say that Benjamin's not with us anymore. In which case, they'd be rid of the two favorite sons and perhaps their father would take more notice of them. Uh, but of course, it might even kill Jacob to hear this news, in which case that would be it. And Jacob said he would go down to his grave in sorrow if Benjamin doesn't come back. Now Judah said he'd become a surety, or he'd look after Benjamin and make sure that he came back. So let's see what happens next. Verse 14, so Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. They fell down before him to the ground, and Joseph, no, we've read that. Then verse 16, Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? For God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he, also with whom the cup was found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. As for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah came near to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a mother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of all his, of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you, said to, then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, and I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. And so it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord, and our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us. Then we will go down, for, unless, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said, You know that my wife bore me two sons. The one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. But your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let me, your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? What a change has come over Judah. Judah's now saying, I'll take the place of Benjamin. In fact, he's being a bit like the Messiah here. He's saying, I'll take his place. 
the place of Benjamin and he can go free. And in 1 John 3 it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Judah's willing to lay down his life now for his brother and for his father's sake. And you can see that there is, this is a change now, not just in thought and in word, but in deed. He's now saying, I'm willing to sacrifice myself in order that Benjamin may be free and go back to the father, and that the father, Jacob, will not be so brought down with grief as he was when he heard of the news of Joseph's death. So you've had all these tests, and now Joseph recognizes that there truly has been a change in their minds, and as a result of this, they can be reconciled. <coughs> and the next few verses are, I think, some of the most moving verses you can see in the Bible. And that's hard to read them without crying yourself, but let's read them. Verse, chapter 45. Then Joseph could restrain himself before all those who stood by him, could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For two years the famine has been in the land, and there will be yet still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. But God sent me before you to preserve the posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and a ruler throughout the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made him lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. Wow, can you imagine what the brothers thought when they heard that? Must have been totally, well, what, you, what can you say? <laughs> Amazed, gobsmacked, whatever, totally. Says they were terrified, actually. That says they, were, they, were, they couldn't answer, but they were dismayed in his presence. The word actually implies they were Terrified, because suddenly they realize who they're standing before. They're standing before the one whom they had sold into slavery, uh, who they thought was now going to be just uh, either dead or in some very lowly and menial position, and now they find him standing before them as the second lord of Egypt, the one who's able to give them bread to live on, and who tells them that actually it was God who sent him down there because God sent him down there in order to preserve life, to preserve their lives, so that they would stay alive in the famine and they'd be able to uh, have children themselves and continue as the children of Israel. And it's all God overruling. And have a posterity in the earth and fulfill the promise to Abraham and you have a multitude of descendants. He tells them to hurry back to Jacob, tell Jacob that what they've seen, that Joseph is the Lord of Egypt. And he says he's going to give them a place to dwell in in the land of Goshen, a fertile reason in the northeast of Egypt, and he weeps and kisses his brothers and is fully reconciled to them. I remember I said this is a story not just about repentance but also about reconciliation. And what you can see when you look at this in the light of the New Testament as well, uh, there's a theme which ties in with what Jesus taught in relations to uh, repentance, sin, repentance, and reconciliation. By all counts, the brothers had committed a grave sin against Joseph. Been on their conscience for all these years. I said for some 20 years, they'd had this on their consciences. And the recognition of this comes out when they say we have guilty for the blood of our brother. And this is why this trouble is coming upon us. And so Joseph wants to see a change of heart in them before he reveals himself to them. He arranges these tests in which they have to choose between acting in a selfish, heartless way and being self-sacrificing. And Judah goes from being the most cruel and the most heartless to the most self-sacrificing. He acts on his word when it turns out that Benjamin is in trouble. And he offers to take his place in chapter 44. And at this point, Joseph reveals himself to them. 
And there's a principle here of forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, Joseph could forgive them, knowing that God meant it was meant it for good. Uh, Jesus teaches us to forgive our trespasses. Jesus teaching, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So we forgive those who trespass against us. But we may not necessarily be reconciled to those who trespass against us. Uh, sometimes, you know, when there's a terrorist act, some people say, Christians stand up and say, well, I forgive the people who did this. Okay, that's all right. It's better than wanting revenge on them. But actually, you can't be reconciled with them unless the person who's done it repents and is, wants to be reconciled with you. Can you see the point there? And that's what this story is about. Not just that they should be forgiven, but they should be reconciled. For them to be reconciled, they have to acknowledge the sin which they've committed in the past and put it right and then become reconciled to their brother, to Joseph. And so it is with us and with our fellow humans. Uh, we have to be reconciled with God. We have to acknowledge our sin and ask God to forgive us. And if it's someone who sinned against us, okay, we can forgive them in one sense, which basically Jesus says about forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But unless they repent, unless they're sorry, then we can't be reconciled to them. We can only be reconciled if they acknowledge their sin and put it right. And that's what this whole story is about. They have to acknowledge that they have sinned and they have to put it right and show by their actions also that they've changed their ways, which is what God is looking for. So you have a story which speaks about sin, repentance, and reconciliation in the New Testament through Yeshua, the Messiah, through the blood that he shed for us on the cross. And the second point about this is that Joseph is seen as a type of the Messiah. I said it right at the beginning that the rabbis see the portraits of Messiah in the Old Testament as Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah son of Joseph, and Mashiach ben David, Messiah son of David. Messiah son of Joseph is the suffering Messiah, the one who goes from the highest place to the lowest place, from being the best favorite son, the best endowed, to being ill-treated, to being put to the lowest place, being put to death and being treated as worse than a slave. We see that that's what happens to Joseph. He goes from the highest place to the lowest place. His brothers want to kill him. They sell him as a slave. Potiphar's wife tells lies about him, makes a false accusation, has him put in prison. Even in prison, the butler who he helps forgets him. But God's overruling in all these things so that he can be exalted to the highest place, to become the second ruler under Pharaoh, uh, second ruler in Egypt. Reminds us of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, Let this mind be in you that was also in Messiah Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men, and being humbled, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Now not only is Joseph a type of Jesus, but also the brothers are a type of the Jewish people, his Jewish brethren. Notice that when they come down to Egypt, they are alienated from him. They don't recognize him. Uh, they see a Gentile, a Egyptian lord before them. They don't see in this apparent Gentile lord their brother, who is Joseph. Doesn't speak their language. He's dressed differently. Even has another name. So it is with the Jewish people and Jesus. Those right through the ages, there have been Jewish people who have recognized Yeshua as the Messiah. For the majority, not at all. And he's become alienated to them. And when Jewish people look at the Jesus of the church, they say that he's the God of the Gentiles. He's not one of us. He's not one of our brethren. Uh, he's dressed in funny clothes. Uh, his ministers are dressed in funny clothes, not our clothes. We don't recognize him. He's speaking another language. He's even got another name, Jesus Christ, instead of Yeshua HaMashiach. And God actually wants to bring them to the point of recognizing that he is their brother. That Yeshua is their brother. He's a fellow Hebrew. He speaks their language. He's their brother. And he loves them and wants to give them his life. 
so that they can have redemption with God. And through a time of trial, he wants to make himself known to his Jewish brethren. And in this, he will fulfill, in a sense, like Joseph, they will come and bow down before him. In the Bible, we speak about the time of Jacob's trouble. Time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, Zechariah 12. And in that time of trouble in Zechariah 12, it says that God will pour out his spirit upon the house of Israel. They will look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. So in the time of trouble, they'll look to Yeshua, the Messiah. And I think there's a great parallel between that and Joseph's brothers here. Through the time of trouble, they look to him and they recognize that he is actually their brother as he reveals himself to them. But there has to be a repentance before they can be reconciled to him. And that's why, as this Zechariah speaks about the spirit being poured out, it then says there will be a fountain for cleansing for sin and uncleanness in chapter 13. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And for all of us, whether we're Jewish or Gentile, to be reconciled to God, we have to come through the blood of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, to have a relationship with God and those who are alienated from God to come into the presence of God, to love God and to know God. And it points forward to Yeshua, the one who brings reconciliation to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, it says, He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Yeshua, and even though we have known Messiah, Christ, according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself, through Jesus Christ, through Yeshua HaMashiach, has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their retrepasses to them, committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading for us, we implore you, on Messiah's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Praise the Lord, the Messiah, son of Joseph, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken by God, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Maybe some of us have thought, as Jacob said, all things are against me. Maybe there are many people out there in the world who are saying all things are against me. But whatever's against you in the world, if you come to Yeshua, then God is for you. And if God be for you, who can be against you? So believe on Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. Be reconciled to God, be reconciled to one another, uh, repent, believe, and receive through the blood of Yeshua the forgiveness, cleansing, and reconciliation with God, which we all need. Amen. Amen. Let's just have a word of prayer, and we'll sing our... Lord, we do thank you for the story of Joseph. Joseph, we thank you that it tells us many things about yourself. Thank you that these were real people who lived many years ago and yet experienced the things which we experience. And we thank you, Lord, that through this wonderful story of reconciliation, Joseph was reconciled to his brothers. May we experience reconciliation with God through one who is greater than Joseph, who is Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, who came from the highest place to the lowest place to redeem us and to lift us up to become children of the living God. We thank you for this in Yeshua's name. Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. Amen. Anybody wants any prayer or any issues about what I've said? Be happy to pray with you. And God bless you. Yes, Andy.
Probably. I mean, I guess uh, divination is a pagan practice, so <laughs> but I, I'm not sure about the cup of divination, actually. Maybe he just said that that was the story, but yeah. Yeah. But uh, obviously he was living in a pagan society with all sorts of wrong things. Yeah. Just uh, one point. Barbara wrote this little booklet, um, Alpha and Omega, which has some of the a bit about Joseph and his brothers and some of the parallels with Jesus. So I'll leave some on the table if you want to take one.